Let me tell you something about pride. Pride is like a weed. Its roots go deep. They go real deep. and They're prolific. Its seed can lodge in the tiniest cracks. And here's something that might be a surprise for some folks. It flourishes in good soil. The greatest danger of pride is that it feeds on goodness. It thrives on honor and nobility. The only way to kill it is to to be ever vigilant, plucking it up by its roots whenever and wherever it appears. We, we, We need to watch for this. We're going to take a close look at pride this morning. I want to show you how far back it goes and how deep it goes. Then then we're going to discuss some ways that we can deal with it. So we'll be looking at Luke 14.1 and Luke 14.7-11. You can open up your Bibles and find that. Luke 14.1 and then 7-11. title for our sermon is The Plague of Pride. Let's take a look at the passage. Luke 14.1. One Sabbath, when he went to dine at the house of a ruler of the Pharisees, they were watching him carefully. Then in verse 7. Now, he told a parable to those who were invited. When he noticed how they chose the places of honor, saying to them, when you're invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in a place of honor, lest someone more distinguished than you be invited by him. And he who invited you both will come and say to you, give your place to this person. And then you will begin with shame to take the lowest place. But when you are invited, go and sit in the lowest place so that when your host comes, he may say to you, friend, move up higher. Then you will be honored in the presence of all who sit at table with you. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled And he who humbles himself will be exalted. By the time we get to Luke chapter 14, Jesus is about halfway through his ministry. His reputation is growing. He's known not just as a miracle worker, but as an authoritative teacher. He's got a handle on the word. And the Pharisees and the Sadducees are beginning to see him as a threat. It seems... Every time they run into him, they get embarrassed. They get humiliated. And amazingly, they get embarrassed and humiliated because they don't seem to realize that Jesus is merely speaking truth to them. Nearly everything that he says to these people uh, come directly out of Scripture, the Scriptures that they're so familiar with. They're so blinded by their preconceptions, so locked into what they think Scripture says that they're missing the one that the Scriptures are all about. They've been waiting 2,000 years for him to get here, and now he's going right by them. In chapter 13 of Luke, uh, Jesus tells this parable about a fig tree, a barren fig tree, a parable really about religious people who produce no eternal fruit, Then he talks of the narrow door of salvation, inferring that there may be a lot of people who think that they're saved who aren't really saved. Now, don't let that make you feel insecure because he's talking about the Pharisees, the Pharisees who believe that their Jewishness, their position in the community guarantees their salvation. And finally, as chapter 13 closes, Uh, a group of Pharisees 
approach Jesus to, to warn him. They want to warn him that he better leave because Herod wants to kill him. Jesus tells them, in effect, that yes, indeed, he's actually coming to Jerusalem to die. They shouldn't be worried about Herod. What they should be worried about is their own souls and their eternal destinies. That brings us up to Luke chapter 14 in our passage this morning. In verse 1, we see Jesus having a meal on the Sabbath with a ruler of the Pharisees. Now, obviously, there are some other Pharisees as well because he begins speaking to them as a group in a little bit. The tension between Jesus and the Pharisees has been established. So it appears to me that this is not a, a, an olive branch. This is not an opportunity of fellowship. They're not saying, well, why don't we sit down with this guy and see if there's some, something that we're missing, that this is not a let's be friends type situation. When you read the phrase that they were watching him carefully, it means that they were lurking, that they're waiting. It's almost as if they're thinking, let's put him in a certain situation. Let's get him sitting here in front of us. We've heard about this, and we've heard about that, and we've had a few run-ins with him, so let's sit down and have a meal with him and take a look at and see what he does when we sit down to, with him face to face. Let's see what he does this time. And let, let's do it on Shabbat. Because that seems to be when he makes his greatest offenses. Let's see what he does on this Shabbat. In verses 2 through 5, sure, sure enough, Jesus heals a man. Just as an aside, he heals a man of dropsy. And I, I remember for years reading that thinking that people couldn't pick things up. You know, I, oh, I fell. You know, actually what it is, it's... it's it's a swollen condition that causes the extremities to be very painful uh, and, and extremely swollen. The people become disfigured with it. And he heals this guy miraculously. And, and of course, it's, it's on the Sabbath. So naturally, the Pharisees question him. And Jesus responds in such a manner that they're left speechless. Once again, they encounter Christ and they're left speechless. This time, because he, all he says to them is, well, is it right to heal somebody on the Sabbath, do you think? And they, they have no answer, but they have no answer because if they say no, then it's like they have no compassion for their people. If they say yes, then they're violating their own laws. So they're standing there scratching and saying, well, what do we do about this? He's done it again. One of the one of the main reasons that they get so embarrassed, and, and I think this kind of gets biased sometimes, that these men are the spiritual leaders of the nation of Israel. They are the religious elite. I, I think we look at them as a bunch of dopes. They're not. They're not a bunch of idiots. They're smart men. They're educated. They're respected in the community. People not only looked up to them, but they had the support, by and large, of the people. They had the trust of the people of faith. Their biggest problem, the Pharisees, was their pride. They were prideful of their position. Maybe even more so than those around them, because we know, we know that the Jews struggled a little bit thinking that they were special, that they were set aside, and you know, there's enough truth in that that, that kind of fed a little bit of a pride in, in the Jewish people themselves. 
And maybe more so than the Jewish people in general, they felt entitled. They felt superior to everyone else. So when a young, relatively unknown upstart like Jesus shows up and begins teaching everyone who's willing to listen the Word of God, he's teaching them their specialty, the areas that they're experts in. They not only feel indignant, they feel threatened. And they feel, they feel the need to defend themselves. Now right there, there's a secret. Let's unlock that just a little bit. Because pride will do that to you, won't it? It will cause you to defend yourself. It will cause you to assert yourself. Pride will cause you to refuse to back down even when you know you're not right. That ever happened to you? I've been in that situation before. I'm standing there going, you know, I know I'm wrong on this, but I'm just not going to admit it. No way. It will cause you to refuse to humble yourself. It will cause you to lash out in anger. Lash out towards a perceived threat. Pride will cause you to defend, listen, pride will cause you to defend what? Your pride. Your pride. You, do you see that? Pride is self-preservation. It is self-interest. It is self-centered. It is selfish. And it seeks to serve itself instead of others. It elevates the wrong person. It denies God and asserts self. Well, Jesus has quite a bit to say about this. He's embarrassed the Pharisees once again. He has their attention. And as usual, when he has people's attention, he takes the opportunity to teach. He tells them a parable. And like so many of his parables, this is another one about the Pharisees and their pride. And in so doing, in telling this parable, he gives them a lesson, but he gives us a lesson on what it means to follow Jesus Christ in this We'll get deep into this. Verse 7 tells us that Jesus begins the parable by noticing, watch this, noticing that those who are invited choose places of honor to sit. Now in verse 1, the Pharisees are watching Jesus. Now in verse 7, we find out that Jesus has been watching the Pharisees all along. And what he sees is that when they enter the room to sit at the table, they jockey for position. Now, the Jews, and let me explain what's going on here. The Jews in the first century almost certainly used a Roman seating pattern, Roman-style seating arrangement that put the seat of honor to the immediate right of the host. And with each succeeding seat to the right, that it was a little bit less honorable. So it looks something like this, like this diagram right here. The people would recline on their left arms. There's a whole reason for that we'll get into some other time. The blue seats were for the host and his family, the people who owned the home. The green seats were for the honored guests and those who were close to him. And uh, the, the honored guests seated to the right of the host. And the black seats were for the, the other guests. So the host usually had an idea where everyone would sit. It was kind of assigned seating. There was a clear understanding that the honored guests would sit right next to the host. And the guests would usually arrive in order, the most honored ones arriving later than the first guests. So, so this kind of helps us understand the parable a little bit. Well, 
and give some insight to it. But let, let me, I, I just want to do a sidebar here for a second because we have to be careful with parables. We have to be careful what we do with them. Let, let, me, let, me, let me tell you this. Parables are short illustrations and they're intended to emphasize an essential truth. Now, parables don't reveal truth. They're not there to teach the truth. They help us to understand the truth. Oddly enough, miracles function in the same way. When God works in signs and wonders, the, the, the sign and wonder, the miracle, is designed to reveal a truth, a truth about God, truth about Jesus, truth about the Holy Spirit, truth about God's plan of redemption. Both miracles and parables help us understand the character and nature of God and, and how we relate to Him. Parables are not, listen, parables are not historic fact. When we hear, there once was a man, sometimes there wasn't a guy, okay? And, and we're going to miss the point if we try to figure out who the man is. The point of the parable is to reinforce a truth that's already been revealed. Now, so should we, be, we should be careful not to ascribe heavenly roles to every person or group of people we hear about in a parable. It's true sometimes when you hear about sheep in a parable, it's talking about God's people. It's true sometimes when you hear about father in a parable, it's talking about God. But it's also true that sometimes when you hear about sheep in a parable, it's just talking about sheep. It's also true that sometimes when you hear about a father in a parable, it's just talking about someone's dad. So we need to be very careful with this. We've been listening to Tim Keller's excellent teaching on the prodigal son during Sunday school. It's been fantastic. I read the book. I, I love the teaching. That series ends this week. In three weeks, we'll be starting a new series by, actually four weeks, I think it is, by Matt Chandler, The Explicit Gospel, another good series. But I have to say, as much as I respect Tim Keller, and I respect him deeply, I love his teaching. He's been a little bit of a mentor to me. I think he goes a bit too far down the path of assigning roles to the father and the two sons in the parable of the prodigal. If you extend the roles out, they become a little bit problematic. None of this makes Tim Keller's teaching bad. There's nothing wrong with what he's showing. It just makes it, I think, more interesting. I'm reasonably sure Tim Keller would not agree with my take on the prodigal, so, and he would have good reasons for that as well. It's okay. It, it, It should cause us to think and to ponder what's going on, But I think his is a great example of taking the parable beyond what it says and maybe missing the primary truth being emphasized in the parable of the prodigal, which is there should be rejoicing over redemption. There should be rejoicing any time somebody who was lost is found. So we need to be careful with reading more into a parable or a miracle than is intended to be there. And with that, let's get back to what Jesus has to say about pride in this seating diagram and and move on to verse 8. When you're invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in a place of honor, lest someone more distinguished than you be invited by him. Here's a prime example of what I'm talking about. Because there are a number of commentators that hear wedding feast and make this into some sort of end times wedding feast of the Lamb. Now if you do that, you're going to have to do some pretty strange gyrations as you go through the rest of the parable and the story unfolds here. Jesus is talking about a wedding feast here. And he's using a wedding feast because it's a very formal affair. 
Even at that, he's speaking of a typical wedding feast. He's not trying to make some point about the end times. And we can have long discussions about how that might apply, but that's not the primary point here. Jesus is merely talking about seating at a banquet and being careful to sit where you assume you should be seated. Now, I want to linger here for just a few moments. See what's happening. Jesus depicts a guest who has assumed too much. Either he has arrived early and taken someone else's seat, he thinks a bit too highly of himself perhaps, he's made an error here of presumption, we need to see that for what it is, or he's assumed that he's worthy of more honor than he's receiving. He feels that he deserves more than he's getting, that he should have things that he has not earned. Either he has presumed too much or he has an acute sense of entitlement. Both mistakes are errors involving pride. In the first case, the guest who's angry over not getting what he thinks is his, perhaps he gets indignant. He's decided to just take a higher position. He just grab it, thinking that surely once the host saw his mistake and saw the error of his ways that he would come around to the wisdom of his guest and acknowledge that yes, you should be in a higher position. Afford him the honor that he so richly thought that he deserved. That's nothing but arrogance. That's nothing but sheer arrogance, sheer unadulterated pride gone wild. The type of pride that assumes that everyone around sees the greatness, wisdom, and lofty position that this person occupies. Now, we all, we all know someone like this, don't we? Someone who feels compelled to remind everyone of his accomplishments someone who demands attention, someone who seems to take every conversation and turn it into something about themselves. They're short on compliments, short on encouragement, short on compassion, long on judgment, and quick to blame others for their own mistakes, for their own shortcomings. As for the second mistake, the mistake of feeling entitled, well, We all probably know someone who struggles with this as well. This person has many of the same qualities as the first, but instead of arrogance, this guy, this guy is upset that he's not getting what everyone else has. It doesn't matter why they have it. It doesn't matter why he's not getting it. All that matters is that he thinks he should have it. And he justifies this. He justifies this by by claiming things. I, I should have got it. I, I, I should have been treated more fairly. He's incessantly expecting to be recognized and appreciated and getting indignant when it doesn't happen. For this person, his expectations are very high. And he's usually hesitant to contribute until he is first contributed to. He's really looking for what's in it for me. He's he's hesitant to appreciate until he's appreciated. He withholds grace, but demands it from others. Both mistakes, the mistake of presumption and the mistake of entitlement, have their roots in pride. 
self-serving, self-consuming pride. And Jesus, Jesus is teaching what? A lifestyle of sacrifice. Lifestyle of surrender, of service. And a lifestyle of treating others more important than ourselves. Now all this, all this is what is coming to surface in this parable of the wedding feast. Because at a wedding feast, the city would be assigned. Anywhere, any, anyone arriving early and taking the wrong seat would have to be moved and would consequently be embarrassed. That's what we see in verse 9. And he who invited you both will come and say to you, give your place to this person, and then you will begin with shame to take the lowest place. You know, I've had to struggle through this passage this week. And I think, I think if we're, we're honest with ourselves, we will admit that each of us may have just a little bit of both types. Both types of people deep down inside us. The presumptive guy and the entitled man, or just to be fair, the, the entitled girl and the presumptive woman. I think we all have a little bit of that in us. And l- l- let me just test you on this. T- tell the truth to yourself now. You don't have to tell it to me. I'm, I'm trying to deal with this as it is. Even as we were looking at these two types were we not saying to ourselves, yeah, I know somebody like that? Were we trying to identify somebody in our lives that has those qualities? Were we not thanking God that we're not like those wretched sinners? Were we not like the tax collector and the Pharisee? Standing in the temple with the tax collector going, thank you God for not making me like this wretched idiot over here. See? You see what rises up in us? It's pride. It's pride, brothers and sisters. Do you see that pride is the plague of all mankind? Think about it. Isn't that what really led Eve to bite the fruit? Didn't she take it thinking that she could be like God? Isn't that, isn't that an arrogant thought? But don't we, somewhere deep inside us maybe, but don't we have that same type of thought? Maybe don't, we don't outwardly say, well, I want to be like God. But don't we all have a longing to be self-determined? Don't we, we all want to be the one who makes the decisions that govern our lives and, and determine our lives' direction? Isn't there something in our heart that acknowledges the sovereignty of God but demands that we be in charge? Isn't there something inside us that re- rebels against sovereign authority, particularly if you were born and raised in the United States? Nothing wrong with the United States, but we do have that streak of I will not bow, I will not bend. Maybe right now you're thinking, no, I don't have that. That's what I thought Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday this week. Thank you, God, for delivering me from that. When's the last time 
Let me just ask you this. When's the last time you reacted to a situation in anger? Think about that for a second. Maybe this morning. Maybe you're angry right now. When's the last time you got frustrated and said, I have to do something. I'm tired of this. Or I'm not putting up with this anymore. This is not the way things are supposed to be. This is not what I was expecting. Those are all feelings that we have. And I've got to tell you something, to a large extent, there, there's nothing bad with it. There's nothing wrong with it. They can be okay. We can be disappointed when our expectations are not met. The problem arises when we, in our pride, literally say, stand aside, God. I'm taking control. I'm in charge of this moment. No one will fix this, so I have to step in. I have to assert myself. I have to steer the situation. I have to control what's going on around me. I have to control all these people. I have to show them and convince them that I am right and that I am righteous. And when they see how right and righteous I am, they'll all bow down and go, oh, we were wrong. That ever happened? That ever happen when you get angry at somebody? No, not me either. Do you see? You see how easy it is to respond to some feeling deep down inside that we need to be the one to be in charge? That we need to be the one to be the God of this situation? All of those feelings come with a whisper in our souls that either presumes that we are more than what we actually are or feeds our sense of entitlement. And none of those feelings even come close to treating each other as more important than ourselves. They don't come close to living a life of service. They don't come close to surrendering everything to the Lord. They don't come close to sacrificing for him because he sacrificed himself for us. Pride is in our natures, loved ones. We've talked about Eve. It was there in the garden. It was there when Noah felt that he needed to break and needed to relax after the flood. We all know what happened there. There when the people demanded a golden calf from Aaron. It was there when Moses struck the rock twice. It was there when Elijah claimed to be the only one who was speaking up for God. It was there when David stayed home when kings went out to war. It was there when Solomon built his home much larger and much more elaborate than the temple. It was there in the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the priests in the first century in this dinner that they were having. It's our human weakness. And God sent his son to deliver us from it. He died to free us from it. He rose up in heaven to seal all of that for us and sent his spirit to empower us to live the way that he tells us to live. But that's not some magic wand that he waves over us. We have to walk it out. God is transforming us, but we fight that change, don't we? 
Paul describes that fight in Romans 7. Take a look at it later on this afternoon. The struggle between the flesh and the spirit. It takes some participation to walk in the spirit. And that's what we see in our next verse in Luke 14. But when you are invited, go and sit in the lowest place so that when your host comes, he may say to you, friend, move up higher. Then you will be honored in the presence of all who sit at table with you. There it is. There it is. The, the answer to how we break the stranglehold that pride has on us. We purposefully, sacrificially, consciously humble ourselves. Demanding nothing. Expecting nothing. We're actually filled with joy that we've even been invited to the feast. Our honor is being invited to the table at all. Now, this is hard to do. It may be. It may be the hardest thing we will ever do. Treating someone better than we treat ourselves is counterintuitive, isn't it? It goes against our nature. Even, I, I find that even when I try to treat somebody better than myself, I, I wonder what I'm going to get for it. Surely they'll treat me better. Maybe you don't struggle with that. I'm disappointed when they don't. It's my pride rising up. You know what? God knew it would be hard for us to do, didn't he? He knew. And his intention is to take that nature that we were born with and change it. This is what living a new life and receiving a new heart is all about. It's not about all the bennies. It's about moving us from being prideful people to being humble, godly people. God wants to transform us, not make us better people. This is not a self-improvement program. But he wants to transform us in order to put his glory on display, to show the world that he can change people, that he can make them new, that he can redeem them. We are the living, breathing evidence of his sovereign, saving, sanctifying power and presence in a lost and desperately dark world. We are, brothers and sisters, we are the walking, talking hope of heaven. We're witnesses to the faithfulness of God's promises. But we have to do our part. And Luke lays that out very succinctly. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. There's some effort here. Some participation is required. We're called to humble ourselves. The Pharisees are doing exactly the opposite. They wanted to exalt themselves. They wanted to lift themselves up. In God's economy, exalting yourself achieves exactly the opposite result. Humbling yourself by truly showing humility. You'll be exalted. You'll be lifted up. Now, what, 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 what does this look like? It's a good lesson. We all want that. The reason we want it is because the Holy Spirit's in us drawing us towards that truth. We want that. If you're saved here this morning, if you know Jesus Christ is Savior, you want this. You might not be able to walk it out real well later on this afternoon, but we want it. So, so what, what does it look like? What does it look like to humble yourself? I'll tell you what it looks like. It looks like not assuming 
that just culturally, contemporarily, not assuming that your political position is better than somebody who di differs with you. It's not getting angry at somebody over their platform. It looks like biting your tongue when somebody close to you says something that is offensive to you. It looks like not asserting your control over your kids just because you're the father or the mother and they're, they're pretty well going to do what you tell them to do. It, it means not getting upset when the person in front of you doesn't move and the light turns green. It means not putting a bumper sticker on your car that says, everybody who doesn't agree with this bumper sticker is a dope. My, my daughter, when she first got her first car, put all these stickers on. I said, honey, what are you doing? She said, oh, this is me. I said, in six months, you're going to be fading. <laughs> six months later, she's at the back of the car going, how do you get these things off? I don't like this band anymore. <laughs> yeah. but, but see, this, this is what we're called to do. We're called to not be angry in public. We're called to be, not be angry in private because that anger is just saying, well, I'm not getting my way, so I'm going to get upset over this. We're called not to judge people. We're called not to look down upon people. We're called to respect the authorities over us. We're called to husbands. We're called to love our wives and wives. We're called to respect the husbands. Not, not love your wife if she loves you. Not respect your husband if he's earned the respect. That's what we're called to do. Pride keeps us from doing that. Pride says, no, you've got to earn my respect. Pride says, no, I'm not going to love you because you're not loving me. What if Jesus Christ did that? What if he hung on the cross and said, you know something, you're not loving me right now, so I'm not going to love you. You can get up here and hang on this cross yourself. What if, what if he was hanging on the cross and said, you're a Democrat? <laughs> I'm not dying for Democrats. What if he hung on the cross and said, you know what, all I'm doing is enabling you. I'm not going to be an enabler. What it looks like is compassion. What it looks like is mercy. What it looks like is grace. Unmerited favor. You see, that's what saved us. That's what's transforming us. And our pride causes that transformation to slow to a halt. Looks like us humbling ourselves. an extremely difficult thing to do. And we can't make any of it happen by sheer willpower. The good news is that all God wants of us is a desire to express that type of humility. That's our part. The desire to be humble. To consciously and consistently pursue it. See, that's the cure for the plague of pride. This is how we pluck up that weed by the roots. It's all hard to do at first. It requires constant diligence and a high degree of self-awareness. We've got to catch it before it gets out of hand. 
We have to think about it. Instead of reacting to situations the way we're used to, we have to bite our tongue. We have to refuse to become victims of our own anger. We have to refuse to victimize other people with our anger. We have to resist the temptation to defend ourselves, to assert ourselves, to vindicate ourselves, to justify ourselves, to, po- to impose ourselves and our will on others and submit ourselves to God's will. I wish I could tell you I had this down pat, but I'm still pursuing it. I'm still working on it. I can tell you this. It gets easier. And you begin to see that the gift God gives you when he exposes to you your pride is a gift of grace. It's not God disciplining you. It's not him chastising you. It's God saying, This stands between you and the fullness of my blessing. This stands between you and a deeper, more meaningful relationship with me. It's a gift of grace. And it's the cure. It's the cure for the plague that plagues us. If only we'll take the medicine that God gives us and humble ourselves. We'll stumble on the way. We'll fail we'll maybe even fail more than we succeed. But if we're diligent, if we surrender ourselves and our hearts to the Lord, He will help us. He will change us. The good news is this, my friends. God knew we'd be unable to affect us on our own. He knew. He knew. So He sent His Son to the cross where He would suffer there, die in our place, so that the Spirit would come and empower us, empower us to humble ourselves the same way that he humbled himself by hanging on that tree. And in turn, when we do that, we'll be exalted. Why will we be exalted? Because we'll be exalted with the one who sits at his right hand on the throne of glory. We have an incredible friend in Jesus. He's there to help us through these situations. We can learn to depend on him rather than ourselves. We'll be lifted up. Let's pray. Father, we thank you and praise you, Lord, that you show us these things, Lord, not not in an attempt to, to make us feel small, but in an attempt to realize who we are and who we're being changed into. Lord, we thank you that you don't expect us to make this happen on our own, but you've given us this, this Holy Spirit in us that draws us towards you, that whispers to our conscience, Lord, that, that repeats your word to us, Father, refines us, and brings us step by step closer and closer to a more intimate, deeper relationship with you. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.